All right, let's get after it. Hebrews chapter 9, if you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, there is one in a seat underneath or in front of you, a black hardback for you to have. Hebrews 9 is where we'll be this morning, keeping on in our series through the book of Hebrews. Do we have any uh, Potter files in here? Harry Potter? Anybody? See the seventh movie? Okay, Hayden, yeah. You can, It's church, but you can be honest. I know. Uh, so you can... Now, I have friends on one side who will say that Harry Potter is, like the books themselves probably have demons that follow them around and will infest your house if you allow your children to read them, things like that. I have friends on the other side who think Harry Potter is maybe like the second closest literature to the Bible. Uh, so I'm familiar with both camps. I will say this, if you pay attention to the story, whether in the movies or the books, I personally think the books are better, um, but if you pay attention to the story, try to track and watch for the theme of redemptive sacrifice. So this theme that someone, a self-sacrifice, someone sacrificing themselves or something close to them has this real powerful redemptive quality, this life-giving quality. And watch that theme as it, as it traces throughout um, the book and, and the series. Uh, our text this morning in Hebrews 9 is going to be all about this. It's going to be all about how Jesus sacrificed. So this Jewish man who the scriptures say was God himself, how his death on a cross was actually the plan all along for God's redemption was actually the focal point of history for you and I receiving God's blessings. And so we'll, we'll notice this as we walk through Hebrews 9 this morning. I want to set up the text by um, talking about a time when I was 12 years old. Um, when I was 12 and in middle school, uh, I was at a, a big mouth and a small body. I think we can say that. A big mouth and a small body. And so uh, there was a group of us in our cul-de-sac, and, and we were real good friends. And one summer, uh, uh, some, a new family moved in down the block. Uh, and one of the kids and I didn't get very along very well. And so one of these afternoons in the summer, we were out playing street hockey. Uh, and he had, he had done something to upset him. I'm sure I had. I mean, I don't deny that. But he comes up to me af- uh, behind me. He goes home and comes back. And he comes up behind me with a steel hockey stick. And just, boom, right in the head. And I go down and I drop. Uh, and so, again, not the toughest guy in the world, um, but I had friends, and I had some friends who were kind of tough. And so we got together, and we plotted uh, to get back, uh, to, to take revenge on this kid. And so what we did, and again, I'm not proud of this. Um, this is just something that happened. We kind of ganged up on him, about five of us, uh, and, and kind of went after. Uh, and so we, and now this is an interesting story for me for a lot of reasons. One is because this is one of the few times in my life I can clearly remember winning a fight. Um, and so it just didn't happen a whole lot in my history. I didn't get in a lot of fights as a kid. That's probably why. Just because I was not usually on the winning side of them. So very quickly I developed the slap and run technique. Uh, where you just kind of, uh, one hit and you get out of there. You bail. You're like a ghost. You disappear. Um, it's also interesting because I remember this. Um, so punching, I punched him with my, my right hand a couple times. And, and by this point his, his nose was bleeding, his lips were bleeding. And, and there was blood on my hand. And I remember, I don't want to be like real graphic this morning. But, but I remember this kind of like experience where, I don't know if you ever had this, you're in a situation and all of a sudden like that, you have a different perspective on it. Like you're, you're kind of transported out of the immediate situation. You look down on it more holistically. Well, well that happened to me. And all of a sudden, like in a, in a split second, I just felt really dirty. Like I felt like, and, and maybe more intense than I'd ever felt before as a 12 year old, I felt like something was wrong with me. Like there's something about this situation and this scene that was just wrong. And I felt dirty, like at the very center of who I was. And so 
as a 12-year-old, I knew that there were things wrong with the world. I mean, I knew that there, people murdered each other, um, people would kidnap children, I knew that sisters existed, those were all equal in my mind as a 12-year-old, and so I knew that, that certain things were wrong with the world, but this was the first time I can remember really understanding that I was a part of what was wrong with the world. It wasn't so much a, that's wrong, as we're wrong. And it's really interesting to me, because I remember that night, I went to sleep with the TV on. It's one of the first times I can remember doing that. And the, the reason was that I didn't want to think. I don't want to think through what had happened, what, what, who I was, the choices I was making. And this is something, I know a lot of people who go to sleep with a TV on, or a radio on, or something like that, something engaging them, uh, and so I can't speak for everybody, but I know for me that's largely a form of, of medication. I mean, that's self, that's distraction to turn your mind off and be able to go to sleep because there's so much happening and so much that maybe would keep us up if we had to think about it. Now, looking out, it's very interesting for me to look out into the world and see other people come to these same conclusions, that there's something wrong with the world and then that we're a part of it. Uh, so you can see this in economics right now. Um, in the economic world, uh, there is a big market for eco-friendly products uh, or for social justice products, um, the fair trade, things like that, um, that have the claim that this is helping uh, other people in the world, this is making the world a better place, a more just place. Now, I'm not against that at all, but it's very interesting. Um, and, and actually, the younger generation is actually known for being one of the more global conscious generations um, that we have seen in history, um, with the internet and all these things. And so we're coming to the conclusion, things are wrong in the world. I mean, there's things happening, maybe not even here, but across oceans that are wrong. And then we're realizing we're a part of it. Even our spending habits are a part of that. And so we're willing to pay more money and to go out of our way to try to fix that. Because what happens when you realize not only that there's something wrong in the world, but that you're a part of it, is you do one of two things, maybe both. You medicate or distract yourself, whether it's with actual medication or alcohol, drugs, or just busyness, entertainment, or you, you try to somehow atone for what's gone wrong. And so different people do this different ways. I, I know a lot of people who, their strategy is if they feel bad enough for a long enough time, then they can somehow remove that wrongdoing from them. Or if they just work hard at a good cause, they'll somehow atone for what's gone wrong in their life, for the, the wrong choices they've made. Well, as we pick up here in Hebrews chapter 9, the text is going to be all about how Jesus' sacrifice hits home exactly on those two points. One, what we've done wrong, and then two, our awareness of that. And again, it's going to all center in on Jesus' sacrifice. We'll pick up in verse 1 here in chapter 9. Um, remember, as we do, um, that we're still talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we started that last week. Um, the author of Hebrews introduces a quote from Jeremiah 31 about the New Covenant. Well, until we get to chapter 10, we're still in New Covenant land. We're in New Covenant territory right here. So that has to be in the back of our minds as we enter in here um, to chapter uh, 9, verse 1. We'll read it. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant, 
above it or the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot, cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, if we remember basic to the idea of covenant is this promise that God makes that I will be your God and you will be my people. That what has gone wrong in the world will be undone based on something that I will do for you. And so the author of Hebrews is going to say um, that the tent and all of this um, old covenant stuff that we'll discuss and have been discussing was a, a part of God's preparing creation for his plan of salvation. That, that from the beginning, God had this plan to redeem and to rescue and to restore. And that all throughout history, he's been preparing. He's been making ready the way. So we've used words like he's painting pictures on the canvas of history. He's painting pictures for us so that we would understand Jesus better. He's casting shadows so we would see the reality in Christ. He's shaping our imagination. He's giving us language to use with the priest system, with sacrifices. He's giving us language so that we would understand his heart and what he's going to do. He's preparing the way for his salvation to be enacted. And he starts off here in verse 1 by saying the Old Covenant, it had regulations for worship and an earthly place of worship. So there were both rules, things that you were supposed to do, and then there were a structure, there was an architectural side to worshiping God. And so God again set up a dwelling place among Israel. He said, build this, I'll show you what it's supposed to look like, build it, and I will dwell there. And you can approach me. You can come into my presence and atone for your sins and find forgiveness and life transformation. So there are rules and there is a structure. And he'll talk about both of these in turn here. Um, and again, he's setting up the old covenant, uh, particularly these two aspects of it, so that he can then compare it and throw light on Jesus and his work. Um, so in verse 2, he says, A tent was prepared, the first section, um, the holy place, the sec second section, the most holy place. So you have a tent. You have two sections. You have the holy place and the most holy place. And so we'll look at a picture here in a moment, um, and hopefully it'll help you out here. Um, but you've got um, a, a wall, or we'll just go go look at it. You, here's a, a model. Here's a model that was built in Israel of what they think the tent, the tabernacle, looked like in this time in the wilderness. Um, so what you have, you see here, is you have a curtain um, that creates what they call the courtyard. And this is where everyone would come and enter and sing songs and read the scriptures. You have an altar here. You have a basin of water here. Um, and then inside the courtyard, you have the tent, the tabernacle. And it's split into two parts. So you would walk in, and then if you look up, here's the blue plan. Here's the holy place. There's a veil, a very thick, strong veil. And behind it, you have the most holy place. The scriptures tell us what was in there, what was in these structures in the holy place. Um, there was a lampstand, the menorah. It had seven arms. It was always lit. There's a lampstand. And then there was a table, much like our table, um, that they put bread on. They called it the bread of the presence. It would be 12 loaves and two rows of six. And they would change, change weekly. They put fresh bread out there. And that was in the holy place. And as you entered into the most holy place, where God most fully dwelt on earth, there was the Ark of the Covenant, an altar of incense. And the Ark of the Covenant was um, a wood chest covered in gold. 
um, that had certain things inside of it, the manna, Aaron's staff, the tablets, the commandments were written on. On top of it, there were these angelic statues, the mercy seat, where God sat, where you would present the sacrifices. And so he says, okay, get it in your mind. You need to understand there are two sections to God's dwelling place in the old covenant, in the first covenant. The holy place, the most holy place. We'll come back to this in just a moment. But he moves on to the rules, the rituals. He says, verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. And into the second section, only the high priest goes once a year with blood. And so you had um, constant busyness in the first section of the tent. The, uh, one priest every day would go in and they would do certain ritual duties. Um, they would trim the lampstand. They would make sure it was lit and would stay lit. They would replace the loaves again once a week. And then the most holy place, no one was allowed to enter. Um, God himself said, if you enter into the most holy place, later we would call that the holy of holies. If you enter into that, you probably shouldn't expect to come out. It's going to be hard for you to survive my presence that intense with your sin, with your disobedience. But once a year, the high priest, so the, the leader of the priests, he would go into the most holy place. And not without a lot of preparation. So he would go through lots of washings. He would make sacrifices for himself before he went, even went in. And then he would go in and he would take with him blood, a sacrifice for his sins and the sins of God's people. And we'll get into all of that at more depth, um, both today and, and next week. Um, so this is the way that God had set up his people to approach him. This is the way he was dwelling with them. This is the system he set up for them to come worship and to find forgiveness. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to point out a few deficiencies in this system. Um, a few things that were actually shadows pointing to the reality that would be Christ. That would be his work on the cross. And so we'll keep reading here in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 10. But deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, verse 10 here is kind of his main point in this little passage. He says this old covenant, this whole system, the rules and the structure was imposed until the time when God would reform all things. Um, now, if you have an NIV, if you're working out of that, um, it would say a new order until God establishes a new order. I actually like that better. Um, now, not a big fan of the NIV, so if you like the NIV, there's one Sunday out of 50, 52. And I'll give to you. Okay, good decision there. Um, but this, God had a plan to reform, to make all things new. And he says this was imposed until he completed it. It was a temporary part of the plan for redemption. It was the temporary peg. It was a holding place. While God paved the way for his ultimate redemption, salvation, renewal, recreation. Much like if, if a city is building a highway, and as they're building it, they need to set up detours and maybe even make a couple little roads. Those aren't the, the final plan. Those were put in place to prepare and to pave the way and to enable 
people to get to the final plan, which is the highway. He says this was a temporary setting until the time of Reformation. But he says there's a couple of deficiencies here that would point toward um, something else coming. The first is, and we see it in verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is standing. So he says this simply, the way to God's presence was still waiting to be revealed. We were still waiting to be opened up. Even though God had promised to dwell with his people, it still seemed like he had set up so many obstacles to get to him. So I mean, if you even, I mean, think about walking into the courtyard, approaching the tent. There are three altars between you and God's dwelling place. The altar in the courtyard of the burnt offering where you would bring a cow, a goat, something of your own. Then there was the offering inside the holy place, an offering at the Ark of the Covenant inside the most holy place. So there's this picture painted that God needs some serious work to be done before you can approach him. That because of your sin and uncleanness, there are some serious things that have to happen before you can even start to get close to him. There are these obstacles in the way. Where in fact, normal Jewish people weren't allowed in the tent. One priest would go into the holy place every day. The high priest would go into the most holy place once a year. The other stood in the courtyard. He's saying, even the way this is all set up, it's, it's pointing towards the presence hasn't been open. We haven't been allowed access into this free relationship with God where our sins are forgiven, where we find forgiveness and freedom and life and joy and peace. It's not been opened yet. And then he, if you look at verse 9, he says that um, the tent, the structure of the tent is symbolic for the present age. Um, he says that the double tent was an illustration of the two ages of God. Um, so he starts to get a little confusing here. Um, he makes an analogy. So he's looking at, try to follow me, he's looking at the tent and you've got two sections. The holy place, the most holy place. And he says, that reminds me of the two ages of history. So Jewish people divided all of history into two ages. The present age and the age to come. The present age is the world of sin and death and suffering and pain and oppression and abuse. And the age to come was the age when the Messiah would reign. When God would fulfill his promises. When the new covenant would be established. And so the author makes an analogy here. He says, I'm looking at the tent. It's a double tent. There's two sections to it. And it reminds me there's two ages to God. Now it gets a little confusing because the entire tent is actually in the first age of God. Even though that's part of the analogy, it's kind of split in half. Um, you can see in verse 5 here, he says, he's talking about everything in the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, of these things in the verse 5, we cannot now speak in detail. This sounds like someone who's giving a lecture um, and it's like, look, I don't have time to go into this. There's so much more I could say. There's so much more I could explore with you, but I don't have time. He says the, the tent, it's, a, it's an illustration, a symbol, a, a picture of the two ages of God, of the two ages of history. So catch this here. The tent and what it stood for, what it stands for here in Hebrews, is not just a critique on the Jewish old covenant system of sacrifice and worship. It's a critique on the age of sin and death, the present evil age that we still live in. It's a critique on us being aware of our sin, being aware of the world that's gone wrong around us, and trying to medicate and atone for it. And he says, as long as that's still standing, the new hasn't come. The new covenant, access into God's presence, forgiveness of sins, those things aren't around yet. And he keeps 
um, speaking here as we move on into verse 9. According to these arrangements, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So let's talk about sacrifice for just a minute here. This is something that's very foreign to us. The idea of a sacrifice or an animal sacrifice, which is what's being talked about here. Um, but it wouldn't have been very foreign to, to people back in antiquity, to, in these ancient times. In fact, it would have been hard for them to imagine a world or an understanding of God that didn't involve constant bloodshed. To us, this sounds barbaric. To us, this sounds almost offensive in a sense. But underneath the idea of a sacrifice, there are three threads that I want to point out. The first thread is this. A sacrifice is human beings offering up something valuable to God. So as we enter into the courtyard, as a Jewish man, we would bring a goat, an unblemished goat, the best that we would have, and we would allow the priest to kill it and offer it to God. As a way of saying, you own everything. You deserve my best. Here's my sacrifice to you. The second thread running underneath the idea of a sacrifice is that there is sin that needs to be atoned for. So particularly in the Old Testament, the consequence for sin was death. And so God's blazing into the hearts of his people that this is what sin does. It kills. I mean, imagine, sometimes I wish we still had something like this, because imagine how you would understand your sin and disobedience if from day one you equated it with watching an animal die and blood being spilt. It would be written inside of you that this is what sin does. This is what disobedience does. This is what it smells like. This is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. Sin produces death. And God's promise was that we would not pay the price for that. We would be forgiven. So life must take our place. So the second thread of sacrifice, that there's sin that needs to be atoned for. The third thread is that you and I need to be washed clean. We need to be transformed so that we can follow and obey and worship. We need to be transformed and and allowed to follow and obey, and, and allowed to be who God created us to be. Um, now, if you look at, it says they, they couldn't, we'll say it like this, the, the sacrifices, this old system, it couldn't achieve its goal. It couldn't achieve its goal. It couldn't do what it wanted to do. And we see, what is the goal here in verse 9? The goal was to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The goal was to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Here's where we get back. Here's, here's what happened to me as a 12-year-old feeling like, what just happened? Who am I? It was a gut feeling, an inner voice saying, this is wrong, and you're on the wrong side of this. A conscience is, that, again, that gut feeling is the best way I know to describe it. And a conscience tells you, you would not stand up if you were examined. Whether it's people around you or whether it's God himself. If he looked through all the records, you would not stand. It makes some kind of moral judgment, says you're on the wrong side of this. And he says what the sacrifices needed to do was to perfect the consciences. That there was, in a sense, a distance between God and man. Because even though he promised to forgive them, even though they knew of his grace, something objectively had not happened to take away their sins. And so... Every year they would have to bring another sacrifice. This is one of the proofs in the book of Hebrews. Obviously the sacrifices didn't do what they were supposed to do because they had to do it over and over and over and over again. And they, they knew something was wrong and, and they were waiting. 
for a sacrifice that would take away their sins and would wash them to the core of who they were. As we move into verse 11, the scripture is saying, this is what happened with Jesus. He was, you see your worship, he was the high priest who all of these things were pointing towards. And so he starts to unpack Jesus' work as high priest in these terms of the rules and the structure. He says in verse 11, when Christ appeared, he went through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, but it's not of creation. So he enters the actual tent, the, the heaven itself, God's presence, his throne room. So where the tent on earth was a model given to Moses, Hebrews again is going to say, Jesus is in heaven. We've seen this, we'll continue to see this. This is an important point to him. Our high priest doesn't serve in a tent or a temple. He serves in heaven next to God himself. And then we see this, that he offers a perfect sacrifice. And as we look at what that sacrifice is, it's nothing less than Jesus himself. So he enters once for all into the holy place, verse 12, but not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, which he offered up. Nothing in Jewish history or literature prepared for this idea that the high priest's ultimate sacrifice would be himself. Would be a human life. And again, this sounds so barbaric to us. This sounds so foreign and maybe even offensive to us. So Christianity has been called the religion of the slaughterhouse. Not in a good way. The idea is that you have this Old Testament with all these animal sacrifices, all these different blood requirements, and, and usually you, you kind of have this false dichotomy in, in um, the public eye that the Old Testament's bad God, New Testament's good God. So when we get to the New Testament, it's grace and love and all these great things that we can deal with. But at the heart of the New Testament is what? Jesus himself dying. His blood being spilt and offered to God. Some have, have even gone as far to say that God in the New Testament seems to be a cosmic child abuser. This is the picture of love that we're given. This is the picture of salvation and atonement that we're given. That God would send his own son to the slaughterhouse. That's how God restores, redeems everything. So, so a good question is, Why? I mean, it says here that the Jesus sacrifice is bringing his blood, is entering into heaven by the means of his blood, but secured an eternal redemption. That that sacrifice, the final sacrifice, redeems and restores, it buys us from sin, buys us from our guilt and our punishment, buys us from the slavery that we exist in in this world of sin and temptation and death. It redeems us. But how? Why? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive? If he wanted to forgive, why not forgive? Why is he setting up the system of blood sacrifice? Why does he slaughter his own son? And why does that stand at the heart of why we should worship him? Why does that not instead repulse us? Um, It's a good question. It's a very mysterious question. Um, One of the best kind of thoughts I've heard in that direction is this. It's by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he said that... Forgiveness, that anyone who's ever truly forgiven somebody of something significant, so not you drank the last Gatorade in the fridge, something significant, if you've ever truly forgiven somebody, 
you know full well that forgiveness involves suffering. To forgive means to suffer. So when someone wrongs you, a, a, a debt is created, a, a gap is widened, and you have an impulse, rightly so, to inflict justice, to close that debt, to close the gap. And you have two choices. You have the choice of doing that, bringing justice, destroying that person, giving them what they deserve. Or you have the choice that Jesus would stand by in the New Testament, which is forgiveness. But anyone who's ever forgiven knows it's agonizing. What happens in forgiveness, that debt doesn't just go away. The choice you have is to let it exist inside of you. It's where you don't deal with that person anymore. But the punishment, the result of that is they're all the same. To forgive involves suffering. So what's happening is Jesus comes and sacrifices himself. As God says, I forgive. And what that means is that instead of giving you the justice and the punishment and the judgment that you deserve, I'll take it. I'll take it. It won't won't come to you. It'll happen to me on a cross as I die. This young Jewish prophet hanging on the cross, who the scriptures say is actually God in the flesh, is, according to the scriptures, the center of history, the center of God's plan. This is how he was going to redeem his creation. By saying, I'll take it. I'll take it. And so, to the one who asked, why would we worship such a God? It's because, would you worship a different God? Would you worship a God who doesn't enter into our pain? Who doesn't forgive us through self-sacrifice? Um, we could say it like this. Uh, there was a quote by, by a great theologian, um, John Stott. He, he said that in a world full of pain and suffering, it would be hard for me to believe in a God who was, who was absent from that, who was exempt from that. Instead, the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, paint a picture of a God who enters into that pain, enters into that suffering, and loves his creature so much that he takes it on himself. He says, it would be hard for me to worship a God other than the one revealed in Jesus on the cross. Other than the one who says, no matter, despite what you've done with the world, despite the gap and the debt that you have created, here's my life. You're forgiven. This is this redemptive sacrifice that you see all over pop culture. I mean, it's almost written into our minds in a sense. There's something about a self-sacrifice that has this redeeming quality and the scriptures are going again and again and again. He's been preparing us this whole time to understand what happened on the cross. The final, complete, perfect sacrifice. And so he'll continue in verse 13. He'll close it out here. This is of the blood of, of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh. Here's what we're saying. Um, these sacrifices did work for external purity. So if you were unclean for touching a corpse, whatever it was, you could make the sacrifices and you would be clean again. You could come back to the community. So they worked in that sense. They just didn't, again, go to the core, go to the conscience. And if that worked, he says, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ to through the eternal spirits 
offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He says Jesus' sacrifice achieves a deep cleansing in the core of who we are. So there is an objective event, which is the atonement, the sacrifice. And then now there is a subjective experience for the worshipers. Where we now live knowing that the sins have been dealt with. They've been dealt with. We are forgiven. And this changes everything. The scriptures say this goes to the very core of how we think and feel and react and breathe. We're now purified. Because because we have the revelation, the understanding, the faith that on the cross, all of our sins, past, present, future, all that is wrong with the world, all that we are involved with in that wrongdoing was dealt with. We don't earn our standing before God. We don't grasp and reach for grace. We don't look for it around corners and in dark places. It's been given to us. And the scriptures would say, this is so important. Catch this at the end of verse 14. It purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, we don't, it doesn't just happen and we get to be happy and do whatever we want. The, the point of this is that God is bringing us back to where we're supposed to be, which is, in a sense, true human life. So this purification, it frees us to live like true humans in a joyful, worshipful, obedient response of service to God. So the scriptures say human beings were meant to be the imago Dei, the image of God, God's representatives on earth, walking closely with Him and reigning over His creation. We've fallen away from that. We have disobeyed, rebelled, and the scriptures say He's bringing us back to that role. Now, because of the atonement, the sacrifice, we are free to be humans. We were meant to be. We are free to obey and worship and follow. We have unlimited new beginnings. He's bringing us back to where we were supposed to be the entire time. We're not free to be humans. This is why understanding Jesus as simply a moral teacher will never work. It's not good enough. The problem has never been that we don't know what to do. The problem has been that we haven't and can't. Atonement needs to be made. This is why a message of self-esteem will never work. A message of, no, really deep down inside, you're a good person. Because you're not. I mean, you're not. You are not a good person. I'm not. And what an affront to the God of the universe who died on the cross for us to get up here and say we are. No, the truth is, we rebelled. The truth is, the war, poverty, sickness that surrounds us is our fault. But he died for us. A sinner of history, his plan all along, his sacrifice for us. That's why we worship. That's why we obey and follow. Hebrews is saying, I mean, he's pleading with us here, the author, to to recognize that the old has passed and the new has come. And for those of us who weren't involved with the old, we can still look at it and read about it and learn from hindsight. 
and see more clearly how God was setting up symbols and pictures, images, language for us to understand who Jesus was. The, the scriptures say very clearly that who you and I are as God's people is those who have been redeemed. Those who understand and have placed their faith in the fact that on the cross, that sacrifice was for us. That we are different people because of that. That we have a different standing before God because of that. That an objective reality has taken place and nothing we can do could change. And that produces a subjective reaction in us that leads to life and worship and obedience. My prayer and my hope is that we would let this, this truth transform us. We would, we, would, we would continue to dive more and more into this mystery. It's a mystery. I mean, it is. It's a mystery. God of the universe pouring out his blood for us. And as we dive into that, we come closer and closer and closer to the heart of what love is. What forgiveness is. Of what true life for us was always supposed to look like. I pray that we would, we would continue to, to revel in these truths, to explore them, and then to, to be transformed by them. He was just painting us a picture. He's saying, this is our high priest. And so any thought of going away or going back or, or wherever you would have it is, is no use even thinking about. This is our high priest. This is him, the sacrifice that saved us. And so he pleads with his, his readers, his congregation, like I'm pleading with you today, which is to follow, to worship, to serve. And in him we'll find salvation, peace, joy, life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for our time this morning. Um, I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. I thank you for our time in the book of Hebrews. I pray that you continue to speak to us, um, that you continue to uh, move in us. I pray that you would allow truths such as this to infiltrate into the deepest parts of us, um, that we'd be transformed, that we would, again, breathe and think and walk, talk, look differently at the world around us. We love you. We know that we can't do this. And it's such a, it's such a joy to, to get to the point where we say we need you. We need you much more than we need us. And so, Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, I mean, almost with a, a worship and a gratitude that's almost too deep to even express in words or singing. <coughs> Be with us. Move in us. Let's for your sons. Beautiful and glorious hand that we pray all of these things. Amen.